Hi, friends. How are we doing? Very glad you're here on this holiday weekend. This uh, summer, last week we finished our study of the book of Philippians. For the rest of the summer, starting next weekend, we'll begin a series looking at seven letters written by Jesus to seven churches in the ancient world. And those letters are found in two chapters of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Each week we'll take a church and we'll find how these letters that were written to this ancient, these ancient communities still has relevance for us right now. And so I hope you can join us starting next weekend. This, this weekend, I've asked my longtime friend and colleague, Ken Boney, to share from the scriptures. He has a personal message that he's been reflecting on quite a bit lately. And uh, I hope you came ready to listen because I think the Lord has something to say to us. Before Ken comes, why don't we invite God to speak? Lord, teach us. Speak to us. Shape who we are. May the words we hear today make us better people, people who are closer to you, knowing you more in the name of King Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, good morning. How are we? Good. It's great to be with you guys today. Um, If you guys would indulge me for a few moments... I want you to picture a hot summer night in a clearing off a cornfield, a big bonfire in the middle, the flicker of fireflies all around, and 20 cousins speaking a little louder than necessary, circled around the fire, passing a bottle of Iowa distilled Templeton rye whiskey. That is how one of your pastors spent a night a couple of weekends ago, and it wasn't Troy. That was just one night from my Mayher family reunion on my mom's side of the family. That's why I'm wearing this t-shirt and these boots today. What do you think? Work? Well, I am happy. I'm happy to report that I let the bottle pass me by each and every time. And I did so not having a clue that I would include it in a sermon a couple weeks later. So glad that that happened. So I could tell you guys this story. So I go to bed that night, a little earlier than most of the rest of the crew. Uh, And the next morning when I got up, I heard tales about a dispute that ensued after I left turns out that my brother and one of our cousins got into an argument about when Grandma Mayher passed away. You know, my brother claimed that it was 1972, and my cousin claimed that it was 1975. Back and forth, they went back and forth. They could not settle the argument. Well, there was only one logical way to settle this dispute. About 10 of my cousins climbed in the back of a pickup truck and they navigated back roads, gravel roads, all the way to the cemetery. 
I guess they were running around the graveyard with their cell phone flashlights, taking pictures and videos. Someone said it looked like the Blair Witch Project. So they get out there, they find the gravestone. Turns out grandma didn't pass away in 1972 or 1975. It was 1973. Well, now you have a little idea of how my beloved cousins roll. Uh, my mom grew up on a farm in Iowa, and my dad grew up, or and my dad, my mom and dad, or my, I'm sorry, my mom grew up on a farm in Iowa, and my dad grew up in northwestern Indiana in a railroading family. Uh, they both came from big Catholic families. Uh, here is my dad with his mom and his nine brothers and sisters. That's my dad in the front, just to the right of grandma there, the front row. He was the youngest the youngest child. Um, my mom, she was the youngest of five children. Her family was Irish Catholic, and for the most part, they fit most of the stereotypes. Big families, big drinkers, big talkers. Um, there are actually 30 first cousins on my mom's side and 31 first cousins on my dad's side. That means I have a grand total of 61 first cousins. You guys thought that only happened in Utah. Well, here is a picture of me mom and her two brothers and her two sisters. She is the lady in blue on the right. Um, this picture was taken at my cousin's wedding in the late 80s. And here is what happens when people reproduce. <laughs> this is a picture from my family reunion a couple weeks ago in front of a grain elevator in Mingo, Iowa. Do not ask me to name all of my cousins. I know far more people in our church than I do in my family. I cannot even begin to keep track of all of them. Well, we had not had a family reunion since 1996, and a lot happens in 20 years. Have you guys ever noticed that when you go to family reunions, we tend to size ourselves up a little bit against the relatives? You know, we compare jobs kids, wives, livelihoods, etc., toys, that sort of thing. Well, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I was a beer salesman. In my family at that time, I completely dominated the competition for best profession. Wasn't even close. 20 years later, I'm a Protestant preacher in an Irish Catholic family. Nobody even asked me about my job this go-around. They just don't want to know. Well, with eight aunts and uncles and so many cousins, uh, odds were good that some of us had faced crisis and calamity in our lives. On this trip to Iowa, I was overwhelmed to discover that many of my cousins had suffered serious heartbreak and heartache. Um, all, and for the most part... I think they all dealt with these tragedies without knowing that there is a God in heaven who loves them. And I, I, I often wonder how people handle discouragement. You know, the bad diagnosis, the ugly divorce, the professional disappointments, and even death without knowing the love of Christ, uh, without some sense of hope or purpose or that something bigger is going on. 
Now, I, I realize that we are all at different spaces on the spiritual journey. You know, you may be in here today and you're just checking out church and you're not sure if anything about God is true or if Jesus was his son or if you can trust either one of them. Well, regardless of that, you're welcome to journey with us. But with the tragedies that I'm about to list, I can also understand why you might question whether or not there is a good and loving God. So here are some of the major trials that my relatives faced or have experienced over the years. Uh, Back in the early 1980s, one family had a large dairy farm. And they were doing really well. And they decided to go from 100 cattle to 300 dairy cattle. So they built a state-of-the-art facility. And I don't know if you guys know much about milking cattle, but when you have dairy cattle, you've got to milk them two to three times a day. So it's a 24-7 operation. Uh, everybody in the family was invested in this thing. Well, they tripled the size of the herd that they had, tripled their expenses, tripled their work. And at the same time, some of the cows got sick. And the cows ended up producing the equivalent of what the 100 cattle would have produced. So they tripled everything, and they're making about the same amount of money they did when they only had 100 cattle. Well, this was in the same era that banks started raising interest rates. They went through the roof, and banks started foreclosing on farms. And they lost the farm, their home, their land, their operation. For over 40 years, this family had farmed, and they lost it all. My cousin, uh, one of my cousins who was walking me through the old barn, we got to visit this farm. They don't own it anymore. And she's walking me through the dairy barn, explaining to me all these stories that went along with this. And she told me that her oldest brother, she said, every time he drives by this farm, he feels like the biggest failure in the world. And it's been over 30 years since that happened. You know... It's my understanding also that some of his closest friends, while this was going on, they distanced themselves from him. So he didn't even feel like he had friends to help him get through this stuff. And I can, I can just imagine, I would have struggled to forgive the bank. I would have struggled to forgive my friends. I would have struggled to forgive myself. I would have struggled to forgive my God. Well, I have another cousin uh, who was living in Arkansas and made some bad decisions in his teenage years. He started transporting marijuana, and he ended up getting caught while transporting this stuff. And the night before he was supposed to go to court, uh, his roommate was an accomplice, was with him. So they're both supposed to go to court the very next day. The night before they go to court, his roommate shoots and kills him and lights the house on fire. I cannot imagine the pain this must have caused his parents and siblings. You know, did mom and dad wonder, what if we had done this or said that? Did they, did they blame themselves? And were they ever able to forget, forgive the roommate who'd actually murdered their son? I've got another cousin uh, who'd been married for over 25 years, had three grown children, and about three years ago, her husband committed suicide. And then I've got another cousin who is a little bit over 60. She's, I think she's in her early 60s. Uh, she's single, and when she introduced herself to my wife and I at the family reunion, she said what her name was, and she said, yeah, I'm the only one of my seven siblings who has never got married or met anybody or had kids, and you just tell that she was lonely. 
And then I have another cousin that lost his wife to cancer just this last fall. And each of these three people has had to deal with just a mixture of sadness and loneliness. Um, I know this is, you're probably like, is this even possible? But there's a little bit more. I have one cousin about 15 years ago. uh, His wife calls the police, domestic violence call. Uh, I think he was drunk. He comes out of the house wielding a knife, and the police gunned him down right on his, on his porch. And then I have another cousin who lost her 29-year-old son to a car accident. And these are the, just the big tragedies that I'm aware of. But I can only imagine how much more has happened in their lives. Divorce, death, worry, loneliness, bitterness, guilt, shame and alcoholism are all part of the many challenges that my relatives have faced. And I drove away from that family reunion with 15 hours of windshield time in front of me coming back to Salt Lake City. I was just pondering all the sad circumstances and events that had happened in my family's lives. You know, I wondered if these folks knew that there is a God who loves them immensely and cares intensely about all of these things that have gone on. You see, I, I, ha- I have a belief. I have a belief that love can get you through almost anything. That with love, you can get through almost anything that you face in life. And when the source of that love is God, you are tapping into the most powerful force in the universe. And as you face the storms of life, there is a loving rock that you can stand on. Well, as I, as I thought about all of these painful events, you know, the struggles that they've had, the dreams that died, the regrets that haunt their memories, the what-ifs that they must ask themselves, it dawned on me that if all of this happened just to the cousins on my mom's side, how much more in our capital community, how much more in our family... How much have each and every one of you faced? What have you personally faced? How have you been disappointed by life? About uh, seven or eight years ago, I was reading this book and I read this quote that just really stuck out to me. It's by pastor, preacher, and author A.W. Tozer. And he said this, it'll be up on the screen. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? I'm not sure what my cousins think. You know, we all have images of God swirling around in our head. Uh, Some of them have been formed by what we were taught. Uh, Some have been formed by how we were treated by others for better or for worse. And some of our images of God have been formed by the trials that we've had in our life and the triumphs that we've had in our lives. Do people believe that God even gives one iota about their life? Do you think God knows your pain? And do you think that God can offer hope and that he cares? Is it even possible to think that he is loving and that he loves you? Well, I was brought up in a home believing 
in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as long as I can remember, I always believed in Jesus. I believed who he was. And I'm so grateful for my upbringing, for my parents, and for what they taught me, and to their faith and their commitment to one another. Uh, But at times, I had my doubts. You know, there were times when I wondered if all these rules made a lick of sense. There were seasons when I was ticked at God because things didn't work out the way I thought they should. You know, at times, guilt and shame and fear shaped how I viewed God. I was afraid of God, of his wrath, of hell, of failing him, of dying a sinner. And, and I don't know if this is what I was taught by my church or by my family, but I remember that this is how I thought about God all the way into my 20s. And eventually I backed away from that God. I just kind of distanced myself. And I imagine this is still how many of us view God. Someone to heap on guilt, someone to fear. But that, that's an incomplete and inaccurate image of God. You know, I want each of us to know today that we can truly know God and know love. I believe that if we got to know God, we would know love. Love like we've never known. Love that hopes. Unconditional love. Love that heals. Love that lifts. Love that forgives. And love that never, ever fails. One of my uh, favorite books on the topic of love, of God's love, is by David Benner, called Surrender to Love. And in it, he writes this. It'll be up on the screen. He says, The God Christians worship, love sinners, redeems failures, delights in second chances and fresh starts, and never tires of pursuing lost sheep, waiting for prodigal children, or rescuing those damaged by life and left on the sides of its paths. That's a God I want to know, and that's a God I want you to know. You know, one of my favorite biblical authors on love is the Apostle John. And there's a passage in one of his pastoral letters that gives us some idea of God's incredible love for his people. And we're going to work through that passage today. It's 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 19. And I want to let you guys know a little bit about John. John was one of Jesus' closest companions. You know, Jesus had 12 disciples, but in the Gospels we often read about Jesus with just Peter, James, and John. They were like his three amigos, if you will. And John and John and James were brothers, and Jesus called them the sons of thunder. And John is credited with writing the Gospel of John, but also three pastoral letters that are found near the end of the Bible, and then the book of Revelation, which Troy's going to be start teaching on next week. Well, in the Gospel of John, John actually refers to himself on several occasions as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, you might wonder if there were some narcissism issues. But to me, the real takeaway is that the primary thing that came to John's mind when he thought of Jesus was love. For John, love was the defining characteristic of Christ. And for me, over the years, it has been love, Christ's love, that drew me to him, that softened my heart, that ignited a new love in me. 
And as I was thinking about this, this letter, this pastoral letter, John wrote it 65 to 70 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I thought about what John must have seen during all of those years. Imagine 60 years have gone by. He's seen the martyrdom of some of his closest friends. He's seen the persecution of the church. He faced many of his own trials. And yet when he speaks of God, he speaks of love. You know, in this passage that we're going to look at, some form of the word love is actually used 22 times in just 13 short verses. So let's take a look. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, John writes, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who knows love has been born of God and knows God. John says, love each other, but the source of that love is God, and you have got to know God to know his love. And the Greek word for love here is agapao, agapao. You guys see the transliteration underneath there? Anybody recognize it? Yeah, it's the word agape, agape. You know, agape is the highest form of love. It's an unconditional love that transcends. It's a love that serves regardless of circumstances. And that is the kind of love that God has for us. And verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. You see, when God's love gets a hold of you, it changes your heart. It softens the edges. It fills you with hope and optimism. It enables you to see the world differently like God sees it, with a fatherly love. Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Every time the phrase one and only is used in the New Testament, and it's used uh, not just for Jesus, but referring to other families, every time it's used, it's meant to draw attention to the significance of the sacrifice being made. This was the one and only. Now, I got to thinking about this. My dad had seven brothers. I'm guessing that there were times Grandpa could be missing one and not even know it, right? Can you imagine if it read, God sent one of his seven sons? We'd probably wonder what the poor sap did to have to go to the cross to pay for our sins. But that's not what he said. He says, God sent his one and only. And one of the most well-known verses in the Bible is John 3.16. Believed by many to be, have been made popular by this man. Anybody remember him in the 70s and 80s in the end zone, always on TV? I get it why some people think Christians are crazy. (laughs) But I think credit should actually go to this man. After all, he spoke these words to Nicodemus, explaining God's love. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world, each and every one of us, so much that he sent his one and only son to give his life for our lives. 
You know, he loves each one of us so much that he wants us to spend all of eternity with him in the very presence of love. Now, growing up believing the way I did, I thought God had actually come to maybe heap on a load of guilt or to condemn me. I thought maybe he was mean and wanted me to fail. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, the, the God I know loves me. He wants to be with me. He wants me to succeed. He is slow to anger and quick to forgive. And that's the, that's the God and the love that I want my family to know. Well, back to verse, uh, 1 John, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Notice where God sets the bar here. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. You know, are you tempted to love only those that love you first? Is your love for others conditional? You know, do they have to say it first or show it first? That's not how God operates. In Paul's letter to the Roman Christians, talking about this very subject, he emphasizes that God made the first move towards us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God made the first move. He actually asked you to dance. He doesn't say, when you quit your addiction, he doesn't say when you get serious about reading your Bible or when you've forgiven the friends that bailed on you or the bank that buried you. He says, no matter how you've messed up, no matter what you think about yourself, no matter what you have done, he says, here is my son and here is my love. Let's look at the second half of verse 10 again to sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What is, what is this atoning sacrifice? What's he talking about there? You know, most of us are aware of our need, somehow aware of our need for forgiveness, whether it's forgiveness from a higher being or from a friend or a loved one that we've somehow harmed. Most of us know that we are in need of forgiveness. And I mentioned that I grew up feeling fairly guilty wondering if the penance I had paid had actually covered my sins. Well, earlier in this very same letter, John explained the forgiveness of God when he wrote this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. John says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I want you guys to take a moment. You might even close your eyes. Think about the worst sin that you've ever committed. You know, maybe it's something that haunts you every day of your life. Or maybe it's something that just kind of rears its ugly head every few months. And you're like, there is no way God could forgive me for that or anybody for that matter. Think about that sin and realize that there is nothing you have ever done that God cannot forgive and that he doesn't want to forgive. You know, he is faithful and just and will forgive you. 
Maybe you've lived a life with a heavy load of shame and guilt. God can and will purify you from all unrighteousness. All that guilt that you've been lugging around can be left at the cross. And all you've got to do is ask God. You know, I want you and my cousins to know that when you know God and know love, God's love forgives. God loves to forgive. He wants to forgive you and willingly forgives you and forgives you for each and everything you've ever done. Well, then John gives us additional instruction on loving in verse 11. He says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Anybody ever notice loving one another can be hard? Anybody struggle with that a little bit here and there? You know, loving one another, it could, it could be biting your tongue and saying a quiet prayer instead of lashing out at your kids. Uh, maybe it's ceasing the cycle of gossip between you and your siblings. Uh, perhaps it's dropping your agenda just to drop by to spend some time with a friend who's lost something. Maybe they've lost their job. Maybe they've lost their mobility. Maybe they've lost their best buddy and just spending some time with somebody. But God wants to power our love with his love. He doesn't want us to love out of guilt or fear, but out of being loved. Since God so loved us. Then verse 12 says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God. Although Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. But John says, if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete. You know, there is, there is something about loving one another. Loving our dear grandmother, or our difficult brother, or our impatient boss. When we love others, love actually grows in us. Our love for others grows. And you see, the deal is that the people of the world see the love of God through the love of God's people. That's how they start to see God, is through the love you and I have for others. They see God's love through the love of God's people. And his love is made complete in us. Then verse 13 This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us His Spirit. This is one of the great mysteries of faith. You know, we give our lives to Him. He gives His Spirit to us. And His Spirit takes up residence in our bodies. You know, Paul, speaking on this topic, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, writes this in chapter 6, verse 19. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You see, in Old Testament times, the Israelites, in order to have access to God, they'd either have to go to the temple or go to a priest. They go to the priest for forgiveness. And so all of their access to God was actually 
kind of controlled. And in the tradition that I grew up in, I had to go to a priest to ask for forgiveness. And I felt like I had to go to church to actually access and be with God. But that's not what Paul and John tell us. They say God's Spirit is right there with you wherever you go. We can know God wherever we are at. If you are a follower of His, He is right with you every moment of every day in every way. Well, then John continues in verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God... God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. So, so what's, what's required for life with God? What does it take? Do you have to earn it? Do you have to be really good for God to accept you? John says all you have to do is acknowledge that Jesus, the Savior, is the Son of God. Well, Paul Paul addressed this very topic in his letter to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. He says, you can't work for this. You can't earn it. It is a gift of God, and God so readily wants to give that to each and every one of us. You know, I once heard grace defined this way, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And God so readily wants to give you his love and give you life. Well, in verse 16, three simple words, God is is love. God is love. You know, earlier I quoted A.W. Tozer, and I said, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. So when you think about God, what comes into mind for you? What if when you thought about God, the very first thought was, God is love. God is love. You know, if that's true, you can trust him. If that's true, you can know that you are loved and wanted and that he wants the very best for you. And then verse 16 continues. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is something I want my lonely cousin to know. And my widowed cousins to know that while they may feel lonely, if they are gods, they are never truly alone. They always have someone with them. And at the heart of this passage, we find a little repeated word that actually means so much to John. In the NIV, it is translated lives. Other translations use the word abides. In the English Standard Version, it reads this way. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The Greek word for abide is meno. Meno, it's just a tiny little word. And here's what Bible scholar N.T. Wright says about meno. He says, the word is a simple one. 
meaning dwell or remain or make one's home. But the reality is profound, going to the very heart of what Christian faith is all about. It is a mutual indwelling, we in God and God in us. It's an amazing thought. You know, many of us struggle with loneliness. We feel like we're all alone. And maybe you've got a great family and friends and stuff, but nobody knows about the addiction and you feel like you're all alone in the addiction. Or maybe you're at work and you're struggling and you feel like, I am all alone. There's no future for me. There's no hope. Or maybe you've been looking for a companion for years and you feel like, I'm all alone. But if you know God, if you abide in God, you are never, ever alone. And you are loved and you are valued. In one of my favorite Psalms, uh, King David penned this. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10. David says, he's talking to God, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there you will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Hold me fast. He's got a clench on your life, and he doesn't ever want to let go. And time and time again, God tells us he will never leave us or forsake us. He is always with us, regardless of our relational situation or our Facebook status. God is always with us. And if he is with us, love is with us. And when you know God, you know love, and you are never alone. And then verse 17. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. You know, I know lots and lots of people that go to bed every night wondering if they've been good enough. You know, some go to bed questioning if they've been forgiven by God or if he would let someone like them in based on their current condition. See, God loves you so much. He doesn't want you to worry about that. He doesn't want you to even have a doubt about that. He says that if you've acknowledged Jesus, rest easy. You can have confidence on the day of judgment. You know, I talk to so many people that are unsure of their standing with Jesus, but he doesn't leave an ounce of doubt for us. If you belong to him, you can have confidence that you are loved and you will be with him. Then verse 18, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. You see, there is no punishment for those in Christ. They know God and know love and they know the outcome. And they don't live in a place of fear. When you know you have a shepherd who loves you and is with you, fear fades. Have you guys ever noticed that when you are in love, you you walk a little taller? You feel a little better? You're a little braver? You feel a little bit more valuable? 
Well, if the love of a person has that kind of impact, how much more the perfect love of God. Perfect love casts out all fear. In verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. You know, for those of you that have kids or for those of you that have a mom, which pretty much should include everybody in this room, okay? You were born somehow, right? In most cases, and I know that there are sad exceptions, our parents loved us long before we loved them. Think about that. They loved us long before we loved them. We grew in love for them because of their love for us. And this is how God feels about you. You know, you were born, and even before you took your first breath or saw the light of day or heard your mama's voice, God loved you. And today, I want my cousins and each one of you to know, I want you to know God and know love. I want you to know this about God, and I want you to know that he loved you first, and you can't earn his love, but you can accept it. That no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've been, no matter who you've been with or where you've been, that God wipes the ledger clean. He says it's forgiven and forgotten for all of eternity. And with his love, you are never, ever alone. He cares about your hopes, your hurts, and your hang-ups. With his love, fear fades, and your future is hope-filled. And you can know God and you can know this love. Let's pray. Father, I, just, I think about my personal relationship with you and how far I was from you uh, for a long season of life and how dark my life was in so many ways until your light came into it. And God, um, you know, as I think about our community and the many people here that have been followers of yours for years, I pray, God, that you would reignite that love in them, that they would never lose sight of or forget how big a deal your love is. Some of us have been married for years and love fades and we get busy, but I pray, God, that each and every one of us would either reconnect with you or be refilled with your love and that we would truly know how much you care about all the details of our lives, how you care about our fears and our hopes, our now and our tomorrow. And I pray that you would relight that love in people who need that or if they are still just abiding in that, that they would continue to connect with you. And God, also I know in this room there are folks that are like, I don't even know if, any of this is true, if there's a God in heaven that cares for me or that Jesus is who he said he was. My prayer, God, for them is that somehow your love would become real to them. Whether you use people or music, conversations or circumstances, God, I pray that they would start to get a sense that you love them more than they can even fathom that you care for them and that you want to be in a relationship with them and you want them to know you and you want them to be filled in ways they've never been filled before. You want them to have hope that they've never had before and you want to meet them. 
I pray that they would come to know your love, however that needs to happen. And God, I am so grateful, so grateful for all you've done for each and every one of us and for how you care so much about each of us. God, I pray that we would each be able to experience that deep, deep love in deep ways. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. So, even though I'm technically a guest preacher, there's still homework. Maybe I'm not even technically a guest preacher, but anyhow. Um, we suggest homework every week here. And the first thing I want you guys to know is that this God that we've talked about, God is knowable. He really is. And if you've never started a quest to like find out who he is, not only is he knowable, he wants to be known by you. And so my homework for you is to start reading the New Testament. Start reading the New Testament. If you've never done it, take a look. In there you will find the four Gospels, which are four accounts of Jesus' life, telling you about the life he lived and the love he has for each one of us, as well as about the New Testament church and Paul's letters. And there's just so much in there that's so valuable for you that will help you get to know him. But if that sounds a little overwhelming, just start with the Gospel of John, written by the guy that we were talking about today, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, the next piece of homework isn't actually homework. Uh, The next piece of homework is keep coming. You don't have to do that at home, right? Um, But you will read stuff in the Bible that you're like, I don't know if I understand this. Uh, If you've started coming to this church, uh, one of our goals every week is to help you know God more and more, to know God and know his love. And so just, just keep coming, keep listening, and you will continue to learn about who he was and how much he loves you. My third suggestion for homework is the book that I referenced uh, earlier in this sermon, Surrender to Love. I read this book about three or four years ago, and I thought it just did a wonderful job of unpacking how much God loves each and every one of us and how much he wants us to know that love and how available that is to us. If you have struggled to really believe that you are loved by God, and that God has that much love, this might be a great resource for you to pick up. We do not have copies here. I was not able to get it here in time, but it is available on Amazon, both in paperback and digitally. So maybe check that out. Our verse for the week is actually John, 1 John 4.16, and I've got it up here from the English Standard Version. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Maybe you want to spend some time with this verse this week, but I want you to think about this verse with two questions in mind. The first question would be, how am I not abiding in God right now in my life? How am I not abiding in God? Is it in the relationships I have? Is it what I'm looking at? Is it how I'm dealing with my finances? Is it how I'm treating my spouse? Is it how I'm navigating the freeways of Salt Lake City? How am I not abiding in God? And the second question would be, what will help you abide in God? What will help you abide in God? For each of us, there are things in our lives that draw us closer to Him. 
For some people, it's a walk. For some people, it's music. For some people, it's a conversation over coffee. What is it that will help you abide in him and take a step in that direction? And then the final thing is this graphic, no God and no love. I know it's going to be available a little bit later on our social media platforms. Um, Boy, I really hope that each and every one of you would know God and know love. Thank you. Troy's going to come back up. Please stand. If you'd like someone to pray for you before you take off today, make your way here to the front as the service ends. There will be some people standing here along the edge of the stage ready to pray for you. For all of you, we pray this. May you know love, true love, by experiencing the life-changing, attitude-altering love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks for being here. Grace and peace.